Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. And being that this year is the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, I have to send a special shout out to Yoshiko Dart, wife of the late civil rights leader, Justin Dart Jr., who was known as the general of the disability rights community. And, oh my goodness, to my two friends from the State Department, Richard Roberts and Gang Yang Cho. Richard is in Japan, Gang Yang in South Korea. And if you missed the show last week, it was so awesome. It was with Richard from the embassy in Japan. And when you listen to this show, you will hear the questions and then the Japanese translation and then back to me in English and then the, oh, it was just so awesome. So, you know, go to Spotify or Apple, subscribe to my radio show, Disability Matters with Joyce Bender, or just go in to hear that one show and it is awesome And I know you're going to want to do the same thing with this show today. But first, thank you to our sponsors, Highmark, Wells Fargo, and People's Natural Gas, and Employment Options. We've had so many sponsors this year. And I really want to thank my listeners throughout the world. Um, Wow, I mean, such a great listening audience. Thank you for your support. And just keep it up as you are in the United States. Well, I have to tell you how excited I am about our show today. You probably know, since we put out the social media everywhere, that a few months ago, we had Sherelle Barber, Harvard graduate, social epidemiologist, someone that works with her father, Reverend Dr. William Barber on the Poor People's Campaign as someone that cares about black people with disabilities, people with disabilities across the board and the impact with healthcare disparity. So, uh, Sherelle, welcome to the show, Dr. Sherelle Barber. Hi, Joyce. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's a pleasure. So, Sherelle, for our listeners that did not hear you on the last show, would you tell everyone, you know, what you do, what your role is, your involvement with the Poor People's Campaign? And I just want to tell everyone listening, you are hearing today's civil rights leader now and of the future, and that is why it's so exciting for me to have Sherelle on. So, Sherelle, why don't you tell our listeners throughout the world about what you do? Sure, absolutely, and thank you so much for that gracious um, introduction. You know, one of the things that I'll say is that it has been amazing, um, even in the darkness of this moment and the pandemic and all of what we've had to bear witness to over the last six months, uh, to really be among a cadre of folks in public health and also um, and just folks in the community who are standing up in this moment. So I am deeply honored and humbled to be among, you know, so many powerful voices. But as you mentioned, um, my field of expertise is social epidemiology. Um, I have been working on and studying to try to understand you know, links between structural racism and racial health inequities, um, both in the United States and in some work in Brazil. Um, I try to uh, bring an equity and a justice lens to the work that I do, um, using data to make the invisible visible, as I often say, but then mobilizing that data so that we can have real impacts in communities. Um, In terms of my work with the Poor People's Campaign, it really was born out of this moment. So, you know, as you know, you mentioned my father, Reverend Dr. William Barber, um, in 2018 began, uh, launched along with um, folks from around the country, uh, a rebirth, if you will, of the Poor People's Campaign, which in 1968 
um, was going to be one of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's kind of um, next stages of the civil rights work, really bringing poor folks, um, black, white, indigenous, Hispanic from across the country, you know, together in a, you know, to really challenge systemic poverty um, along with systemic racism. So that was 1968, but unfortunately he did not get to carry out that vision because he was brutally assassinated. And so in 2018, um, Reverend Dr. Barber, as well as Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris out of, um, out of New York decided to revive that uh, vision and launch the Poor People's Campaign. Um, in 2000, June of 2018, there was a massive gathering in Washington, D.C. that I was so blessed to attend, which had actually some of the original folks from the Poor People's Campaign in 1968, along with new folks from around the country. And then fast forward to 2000, um, we have, you know, the emergence of a global pandemic, um, which is, again, wreaking havoc um, in poor communities and communities of color across the United States and the world, and the Poor People's Campaign um, asked if I would put together a committee um, of public health scholars who have been committed to equity and justice to be able to provide some expertise as they kind of, the, the campaign itself charted its way through advocacy efforts throughout the pandemic. And so in March, um, was able to convene um, colleagues at the Harvard School of Public Health, the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights, as well as um, UCLA, uh, the Center for um, Racism, Social Justice, and Health. And together we've, you know, come together really to be alongside this movement, to provide whatever expertise uh, that we can from a public health standpoint, um, but also uh, to really join in with the movement. So for us, it's been an honor uh, to be able to be in community with directly impacted leaders from all over the country. You know, even as we've, you know, put out statements about, the premature reopening of, you know, states and economies. Um, we put out statements about the need to center justice and center equity, um, and we also supported the work of the June 2020 mass mobilization digital mass gathering, again, which challenged, you know, this country to really face uh, the issues of systemic poverty and systemic racism and ecological de- devastation and in that moment, we heard from so many from around the country who've been directly impacted, but also are empowered uh, to stand against these systems of oppression. So, you know, my work is a small part of the amazing work of the Poor People's Campaign and just really excited to be able uh, to be in this space um, and to be doing this work in this moment. Oh, and thank you so much. What you are doing is so incredibly important. You know, I've heard your father talk uh, or read about, you know, what he has said about Jesus talking about the poor. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just seems like uh, sometimes there's a group of people that there's like a blinder on or something, you know, that people right. just don't right. see. Right. Um, right. But yet, yet your father, when I heard him speak, uh, one time was saying how huge this number was even before this pandemic. I mean, it isn't just the pandemic that suddenly right. has all of these people in poverty. Isn't that correct? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that I like about the Poor People's Campaign, and one of the reasons he was so adamant about bringing scholars onto you know this and has done so throughout the campaign, is that that their work is rooted in the data. And as a scientist, as an epidemiologist, you know, that it's always good. My father often says that, you know, all every movement needs footnotes. And so it's been an honor to provide those footnotes. But one of the footnotes that they use, um, you know, in all of the work that they do and have rolled out over the last couple of years is this number of 140 million poor and low-wealth individuals in the United States, 140 million Right. Wow, and they also God. do, uh, and that's, a, that's, a, I mean, we don't think about that. And they don't use just the poverty line, which they see as, see as a vast underestimation of the, the magnitude of the problem. They also, you know, they, they've created a measure that captures also what we would consider the working poor, right? So there are so many in this country who literally work themselves to death. Right, um, and still are not able to provide for their families, have decent housing, have access to health care, et cetera. So we have in this country a chronic problem 
of, you know, poor and low-income folks who have been made poor by the systems of oppression, by the kind of the greed, the, my dad calls it a pornographic amount of greed in this country that then intersects with racism, ecological devastation, the war economy, and this kind of false moral narrative that we've created in this country, right? So, but poverty really is one of those issues that just uh, um, uh, traverses this entire country, from Mississippi to Maine, from California to the Carolinas. You know, poverty is an issue that we have to address head on. I have to tell you something I really hate. It's when you hear mm-hmm. people talk and they say, well, if you just pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, um, everyone could be successful. But, right. you know, yeah. that is so not true. Although, don't get me wrong. It is possible to be successful, but you should not judge people that are striving because, like, you're not in their situation. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. It's, I mean, I think, but that it, therein lies the, the, the false narrative that we've created, right? Um, we've created, and this is, you know, rugged individualism that is, you know, part of the American kind of narrative, right? Uh, that folks should pull themselves up by them, their bootstraps. But we cannot ignore um, the kinds of policy violence that has been exacted among poor communities, communities of color across this country, that even when they are striving, as you said, right, they're working 40 hours more a week, they're multiple jobs to make ends meet, et cetera. Even when you strive, you can't make it in this country, you know, because of, again, the systems of greed. You know, one of the things that, I, that has just been, um, you know, even as we're in the middle of the pandemic, which is exposing so much of the hypocrisy, you know, um, that, that there are companies and entities that have profited from the, the pain of this pandemic, right? No. That is a level of, of evil, really, uh, when you think about it, that in the midst of a pandemic where millions are losing their jobs, millions are lo- losing their health insurance, you know, there are folks who are food insecure, don't know where then you know they're you know if they'll have a home et cetera because of evictions et cetera all of that's happening and you literally have companies and individuals that have profited in this moment that should cause us to be up in arms and in the street when we consider that and you know that's and the and see that's why this movement is so critical because it is calling out. Um, again, the ways in which we've made people poor, this system has created the kind of poverty uh, that we see in this country. Right. For example, and there are so many examples, and by the way, I so agree with you about uh, greed, you know, being Mm -hmm. evil. I, I agree with you. But there are, because there are times you are letting people die, you know, mm-hmm. let's start because mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. not willing to part with uh, the, you know, mm-hmm. a company. So many things they could right. do. Right. Uh, but anyway, right. exactly. um, uh, whenever you study schools, high schools, mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. is no doubt about it, whether it's a private school or a public school in the suburbs or certain areas, mm-hmm. they get mm-hmm. so much more than in the uh, public uh, where it, you know, the city, where it is right. uh, a high yeah. proportion of the poor and people of color that don't have books, that mm-hmm. don't have the same teacher mm-hmm. quality, that don't mm-hmm. have even um, recess or uh, right. kindergarten. Exactly. I mean, right. so now how, how is that person supposed to compete equally? Right, exactly. We really cut people off at the, you know before they even get started in this country, and that just creates this compounded effect over a, you know a life course, um, and that has just huge implications. So you're right that you know when you look at the systems that have created the inequities in education, inequities in where people live, and 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 those kinds of things, the access to jobs and opportunity, you know that's just differential. You know that's differential. Uh, distributed in our uh, in our country, and again, it's because of these laws and policies that have 
um, been embedded in, and constructed to reinforce these inequities. So, you know, and, and again, which is why a movement like the Poor People's Campaign is necessary. One, to call out and to, and to uncover, you know, these kinds of um, systems and structures that create, but also one of the things that has been, you know, you know my, my father often says, you don't just curse the darkness, right? You have to then think about what is the vision, what's the radical imagination, you know, for how to move things forward. And I think that's really the power of the Poor People's Campaign is, is setting out a vision for how it doesn't have to be this way and there's ways and policies and, and things that can be put in place to move us forward as a country. And if we're not going to do it in this moment where we're seeing so much of the suffering due to the pandemic where it, and the racial violence that we've experienced, if we're not going to kind of you know, do the kind of truth-telling, the kind of evaluation of our policies, then when will we, Joyce? You know, when will we actually, as a country, try to say we can't go back to normal? We have to actually restructure the society and, and make it so that everyone has an opportunity to live and to thrive. Yes. Oh, my God. When I hear you talking, I'm thinking, you need to run for office, Sherelle. <laughs> I mean, you are so <laughs> powerful um, and, you know, it, it, as I said before, to me, you are a national civil rights leader right now that people need to listen to, um, you know, because you you have the knowledge. I mean, you have the knowledge. And I like what you said before. You also have the data. How, how many people did you say there were in poverty even prior to this? <laughs> Prior to the prior to this, 140 40 million, and those are numbers. I think those are based in like 2018 or so. But uh, you know, again, the pandemic, as we're seeing uh, the economic hardship that is being exacted because of the pandemic, and what I'll say is because of the lack of responsiveness, right? And so, one of the things I will point out is that we've got a bill that's held up in the Senate that the the Democrats in the in the in Congress passed. To you know, another relief bill that has not been voted on, um, because and and we and and in the midst of the you know in uh, the pandemic where people are really really suffering and need the kind of relief that that bill would have, you know. So you know, we're bound to see that you know these numbers in terms of poverty um, increase over the next few years, and you know we've definitely got to be you know thinking about and wrestling with how we protect. Uh, those who are most marginalized before the pandemic and who are going to be um, pushed further to the margins because of it. Yeah, and see, that's the horrible part, pushed further to the margins. In other words, it will be worse, which is terrible to imagine, than it is now. And if it is, how long will that take to repair? You know what I mean? How long will that take? Um, And, okay, Call to action here, Sherelle. Um, do you yeah. want people to call their senators uh, in reference to getting that bill passed? There's a lot of things. I think there's a lot of things that can be done. I think, you know, one of the, uh, the, the, the some of the work of the Poor People's Campaign is that they've re- resumed over the last few months uh, moral, uh, kind of moral Mondays where, you know, they're calling for different actions. And some of it has been to directly call Mitch McConnell's office to say, look, when are you going to, you know, push this through? And there have been, you know, hundreds and hundreds of calls to Senate offices. Um, but, I, you know, I think the real call to action, especially as we are approaching this upcoming election, is really mobilizing. Um, and that's what, that's what I see, again, that the Poor People's Campaign is really pushing. So they have what's called the mobilizing, organizing, registering, and educating or more uh, people for a movement that votes, which they've been doing uh, voter uh, education training, um, uh, mobilizing folks to be poll workers in this moment, because what we see in this moment, Joyce, is that we have leaders from the top down, and so it's not just this current administration, it's not just Trump, but from in the Senate, in, the, in Congress, who, who do not have the, the interests of poor folks and people of color, at, you know, their best interests at heart, and they need to be voted out, Right. They need, we need some shifts in power and shifts in the folks in office who are making these decisions. Um, and we're literally seeing in this pandemic that it's a, it's a matter of life and death. And so that's one call to action is, you know, we've got to be mobilizing uh, towards this new, you know, this election that's coming up in a way that shifts power so that we can advance 
you know, the kind of um, life-giving agenda that's necessary to radically restructure. So that's one thing. The other, the second uh, call to to action is that, you know, the Poor People's Campaign on June 2020, shortly after June 20, the the mobilizing effort that attracted over 3 million views across the world, um, put out what's called a Jubilee platform. Um, And this Jubilee platform is really powerful because, again, it talks about the kinds of policies necessary to address systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, and the climate crisis, uh, to do all the things that we know are necessary to really radically restructure this society. So I would encourage folks to visit the uh, poorpeoplescampaign.org to learn more about these two initiatives where you know, over both in this short run leading up to the election, but beyond that, really calling for the kinds of policy solutions that are necessary. Yeah, and I just want to say, uh, poorpeoplescampaign.org, if you really care, and, you you know, again, don't say, wow, that's Sherelle Barber. She is really good. Is it this great? You then have to take action. You know, you have to do something. So one thing you could do is go to the poorpeoplescampaign.org and make a contribution. Um, You know, I always say, if you are a not-for-profit, you know, it's like a business. You need money Mm -hmm. to do these things. And you can't sit back and say, oh, I want them to do this. So uh, please take time to make a contribution to the poorpeoplescampaign.org. And then, as Sherelle said, we have to mobilize. Oh, my goodness. You know, there are like 50 million people with disabilities in this country. And, mm-hmm. and the intersectionality is across the board, all mm-hmm. races, gender, etc. And um, if we could just get a portion of these people to vote... We mm-hmm. would change the administration. So, right. and you yeah. know what? Poverty and disability go hand in hand. So I have Absolutely. to say, you've got to vote. And right. I'm worried. I'm worried about uh, mail-in ballots that are not accessible. For example, if you're blind or have a learning disability, right. and if right. you are right. one of right. those people, get someone now to read Mm -hmm. it for you and get it done now, you know, because listen, it's going to impact you. You know, Mm -hmm. Justin Dart, Mm -hmm. that great Mm -hmm. civil rights leader said, vote as if your life depends upon it because it Mm -hmm. does. And wow, is that so true? Isn't that so true right now? It's so true. It's so true in this moment. And a couple of points that I'd make on that, you know, one is that the fact that they, the attempt to suppress the vote is so strong. And, it's, and, it, and actually, what I'll say and what, you know, part of the movement, one of the really big platforms of the movement is protecting the vote. You know, we saw back in 2010 um, uh, when they gutted the voting rights out, we saw, um, you know, this coming in, in some ways, the ways in which they would suppress it. And now it's just coming to a head in this moment the ways in which they're suppressing the vote. Um, and, you know, my father in North Carolina was calling, calling, calling folks to pay attention. Like, they are trying to steal the vote because they recognize the power of the people, right? So that's, you know, and when I think about the folks like Sandy Lou Hamer and others who fought for the right to vote, it was because there is, a, there is some power in having that right to vote to be able to change things and change policy. And, and what I'll say is it's not the only strategy within a bold movement like the Poor People's Campaign, but it's definitely one of them. The one that they're, you know, the ways in which they're trying to undermine the vote and really at its core undermine democracy, right, is uh, just egregious. And so we need to be um, unleashing that. The second point is that you make a point about the disabilities community and there's 50 million folks and if those were mobilized that, that it could really do some, you know, go towards, you know, having some uh, political transformation. The Poor People's Campaign did a similar analysis where they showed that in key states, if the if poor and low-income individuals who were voting uh, towards the kinds of justice that's, you know, put forth in the platform, 
um, you know, if they were voting in, in some key states, that they could literally transform the political landscape and the political calculus necessary to get the kinds of policies, we, the kinds of leaders we need in office to push the kinds of policies that are necessary, right? So there is a power in mobilizing, you know, um, you know, folks to vote in this moment uh, that, I, that I think the, those in power know, know that, and that's why they're trying to suppress it. So, you know, it's just so critical um, in this moment that we're facing because, like you said, Joyce, um, and with this pandemic, it's just making it crystal clear, it is literally a matter of life and a matter of death. Yeah. And, you know, I always say, okay, there are all these millions of people with disabilities, and yet, how often do we hear that by the candidates? I mean, how often do exactly. you hear a platform for that? And and as exactly. you said, for people who are in poverty, I mean, this is where, mm-hmm. this is where um, your, the call to action really is, because as I said, mm-hmm. You're turning a blind eye if you're not seeing mm-hmm. what's going on. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm afraid mm-hmm. to ask you this next question. <laughs> afraid mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. ask you because you're going to tell me we're in the twilight zone again. But <laughs> where, <laughs> where are we on COVID-19 and ah, what do you oh, expect? Well. Oh, I don't like that noise. And what do you expect oh, to see? I want to remind everyone. You're hearing from a scientist. This is not just mm-hmm. someone with an mm-hmm. opinion. Dr. Sherelle Barber. Hear that first part, doctor? She is a mm-hmm. scientist and a social epidemiologist. So she knows this better than any of us. So back to my question. Where are we on COVID-19? Quit yeah. making that noise. I know what's coming. And can we I mean, expect great change by yeah. December? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Let it's a challenge. Have. I mean, you know, we're, we're, I, when, when was I on your show back in June? We were talking about this, and, you know, we're, it, it's, it's challenging, Joyce. And, again, as a social epidemiologist, as someone who's in the field of public health, you know, again, myself, my colleagues, and I, um, we have just been appalled again at, at, the, at the, the federal response. Um, so, as most of you all may know, you know the U.S. surpassed 200,000 deaths just last week, um, which is another very grim milestone in the course of this pandemic. And I want to put that in perspective because globally, we actually just recently passed, passed a million uh, deaths globally. Um, and I think it's really important, even as we are you know, focus on what's happening in the U.S., you know, this is a global pandemic that, ha- that sees no borders. And, um, and, and that, that level of, of death, and, you know, what I try to do is humanize the data, right, so we can kind of rattle these numbers off. But, you know, these deaths mean that that's, those are lost mamas and daddies and, and, and in some cases kids. Those are lost members of communities, of, of families, of, you know, so many People, this is these are tears in the fabric of our humanity, right? And so, um, I think we just always, always, always need to to censor. You know, these numbers have um, names and faces, and there are people connected to families and communities. So that's the one thing I'll say because it's been it's been challenging, you know, to think about uh, the level of death that we've seen just from COVID nineteen. Not to mention the other, you know, uh, causes of death. And we're still continuing to see persistent inequities. Uh, Black, Latin, uh, Latino, and Latinx populations, indigenous populations, all, all of the, those groups are uh, three times more likely to die uh, compared to whites in this country. Um, and so, again, a devastating um, and striking inequity when it comes to death and, and, and inequities. And in some places, these inequities are deepening. Um, we're also seeing um, that the same racial inequities that showed up among adults, there's some data that's emerging that's showing black children are also more likely to die. Um, black and Latino children are also more likely to die from COVID-19, right? And so this is having, again, a devastating impact on all of us. And then there are the communities who were in crisis prior to the crisis. That's what I say. There were systems of racism and poverty and ecological devastation that made this crisis much more 
um, harsh in, in certain communities, and they are feeling both the health impacts as well as the economic um, hardship that is coming along with this pandemic. And so, you know, um, and then, again, in the midst of this, we still don't have the kind of federal coordination in terms of testing, in terms of surveillance, in terms of being able to identify the places where um, um, nationally, you know, kind of a national coordinated system of, of, of testing so we can see where we are. Um, there definitely have been states and locales that have, you know, stepped up to the plate to do the best they can. But again, the infrastructure that we had prior to this crisis and even the infrastructure that we have n- now in terms of public health and health care, it was just flawed. <clears throat> and so this pandemic really um, uh, it, it, it came upon us and we were not prepared and are not prepared and we still don't have the kind of national leadership uh, to get us through, um, I think. And then the final thing that I'll say is that, you know, many of the infectious disease experts are saying that we are in, in the fall as, as October, November, December approaches with flu season, that we are in a moment where we're going to see increases in cases, increases in deaths because... Less people are outside, you know, more folks inside. And so we're going to see some, you know, some higher rates, you know, as we approach the fall. So it's something that we're going to need to prepare for. Um, you know, we, and in this, you know, unfortunately, you know, what we have to do is do the things that, you know, the things we know can protect, you know, us. Um, but, you know, again, so many communities still have barriers, um, and, um, and but yeah, so that's, that's where we are with the pandemic, still in a very rough place, still in a place where workers, some workers are not getting the kinds of protections they need um, and, and still, you know, and, and we're still at the top. We are still top of the list in terms of cases and deaths, um, which is a tragedy um, in, this, in, this, in this moment. So as an epidemiologist, that means you feel it could continue? Continue past December if we have that second wave or third wave, whatever we're on. I mean, we're going to be, yeah, yeah, we're going to be dealt. So I think one of the things that I've tried to just impress upon folks is like, this isn't ending this year. You know, I've heard Fauci even say that we need to be thinking into the second, third, fourth quarter of next year where we're going to be dealing with this pandemic, right? And I know. There are places where, you know, the cases have gone down and folks have kind of relaxed and eased, but, you know, really we are still very much in the middle of a pandemic. And so, um, and it has been accelerated because of the lack of coordinated responses, et cetera, from the top down, right? And so there's just been, you know, I, I used this terminology before, um, uh, Joyce, we played Rus- Russian roulette and continue to p- play Russian roulette with a live of the American people, and again, the black folks, indigenous folks, Latinx folks, and poor folks are bearing the brunt of that. Um, and so, you know, so we're in this uh, for a while, um, especially um, since we don't have a vaccine, and that's, you know, we're not sure, you know, how that's even going to play out. We're in this for a while, and we need to um, act accordingly and, and put people in office that get that too, <laughs> because right now we're, we're in a place where folks the urgency, I don't see the urgency in trying to move, move us towards um, the, the kind of response that we need. That urgency is just not present. Yeah, <clears throat> the wearing of the mask and the social distancing, sadly, has become politicized. And, you know, exactly. I'll go someplace and I'll see uh, all these people. You know, not wearing mm-hmm. masks, and I'm not going to wear mm-hmm. a mask, you know. And I'm right. thinking, okay, well, you're just going to help uh, help to keep this going. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. we already know it's going to go through part of next year, but the more people do that, mm-hmm. where it's become politicized, you know, the worse right. it's going to be. Um, and, right. yeah, I know you, t- you use that term, Russian roulette in the twilight zone, because I tell mm-hmm. people that. All the time. But, you know, when you say to someone, when someone says to me, I don't care, or it's a hoax, or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, again, well, okay, talk to a scientist. Mm-hmm. So talk mm-hmm. to someone mm-hmm. who knows. But when people say mm-hmm. that, that they don't care, mm-hmm. I say, okay, well, guess what? The coronavirus doesn't care either. 
It's going to say. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and I think that's been the, like, that's been the, again, we, what you've said, we, not we, leaders, and particularly the Trump administration, Trump himself, politicized this pandemic in a way that it's causing harm, right? And, and that has been just so frustrating and appalling to me as a scientist where we are literally circumventing data, circumventing science, circumventing the best public health practices and policies um, uh, for political purposes, right? And that is just, you know, when, when, again, literal lives are at stake, you know, and we're really trying to reduce suffering, reduce death. That's our call in public health and, and, and the what we do and why, you know, we need the data and, 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 and the fact that there are literal folks in power, both at the federal level but also state level folks in power that are suppressing that process. Um, th- that means, and I'll say it very bluntly, the blood is on their hands. The blood is on their hands when they have suppressed science, public health practice, and not centered equity and justice in the response, all of that together means that they are responsible for the excess deaths that we are seeing in our communities. And, you know, and we, and, and, and it's, and it's, it's just appalling. Um, it's just so appalling that, that we've, we've come to this point um, in this country. Yeah. And you know what that is? That's murder. That, I mean, just as you said about the blood being yeah. on your hands. Um, so, I mean, we, we've got to get it together or this will continue and people can continue to die. And then there are black people in poverty. If you're wondering about this, if, if you are poor, whether you're white or black and, or a person of color, if you're all having to stay in one, one home, not a home even, where you're renting, because you don't have money, what well, what do you mm-hmm. think is going to happen? Or mm-hmm. if you are the uh, single parent or whatever, and mm-hmm. you're the one on the front lines working, you're mm-hmm. the one that has to go. Um, and you mm-hmm. know what? I heard I heard a story yesterday. I absolutely yeah. cannot believe it, but it's a true story. Is that <clears throat> at some nursing home, the yeah. a person said. You know, personal attendant said, I have COVID. And Mm -hmm. they get a call back by the uh, top people there saying, come in anyway, come in through the back door. These are the things which they did. Yeah, they did not. They did not. But these are the things happening to people. And if you're extremely poor, what are you going to do? You don't want to lose your job. Right. I, I mean, I right. just can't believe people do these things. I, mm-hmm. you know, I just absolutely cannot believe it. But, Sherelle, before we yeah. end the show today, I wanted to give you time yeah. to talk about someone I know had a huge impact on you, and that's Marielle yeah. Franco. Uh, could you mm-hmm. talk about her and why she had such sure. a big impact on you? Sure, Marielle. So, Marielle Franco. So, um, I mentioned earlier in the show that I do work, uh, part of my research and work has, um, over the last few years, has also been in Brazil, um, right? Because um, there's a growing body of literature um, there as well that is linking uh, structural racism to health and health inequities, and I've been able to be a part of that work. Um, um, so, I've traveled to, started traveling to Brazil for research in 2016. And I think that, and I'll say as a part of this story, that is a really critical point. 2016 was uh, when some of you all know um, Dilma Rousseff, um, the duly elected um, president of Brazil, was ousted in a, um, what is what many are, are calling, and I agree, is, was a coup d'etat um, in 2016. Um, and so that, uh, and so I was, you know, starting my work in, and work in Brazil as, um, the democratic um, institutions in Brazil were beginning to erode. Um, and so fast forward to 2018, I was back in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro and specifically, and because of my work um, and research, colleagues um, suggested that I um, meet a woman by the name of Marielle Franco. Um, Marielle was a um, black, queer uh, woman who had been born and raised in the favelas 
which in Brazil, those are kind of the, the segregated, the economically and racially segregated parts of the city, literally on the margins or the peripheries of cities. She had grown up there, but her work um, in human rights activism against uh, state-sanctioned violence and police, police brutality was just so powerful. Um, she she um, worked alongside elected officials to really document the atrocities of, of state section violence. And, you know, she herself, as, um, in her work as a sociologist and someone who studied public administration, um, used her thesis to kind of outline the ways in which black communities in particular are targeted um, in Brazil. Um, and really that targeting is um, not only, um, you know, a matter of, 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 of suppressing and criminalizing those communities, but also in, in an effort to really um, uh, keep them from the democratic processes uh, that exist, right? And so, um, so our work intersected in so many ways in which I was thinking about how, you know, uh, segregation really um, influences health um, and the structures within those communities really has, you know, devastating impacts on the health of individuals. And she was thinking about the ways in which, again, we have structured, Brazil and other countries have structured our society to literally target black communities with the kind level of violence that is just um, unconscionable. And so that, that was her work. And in 2016, she was elected to the local city council in Rio de Janeiro um, as, uh, with the fifth highest vote count um, of the 51 seats that were um, open in Rio. Um, and this was unprecedented, again, as a black queer woman from the favelas to be elected to Rio City Council in that way, and and in her in that in that in that seat, and she used her platform to again amplify the voices of the most marginalized. So she was bringing to City Council the folks who had been left out, the voices who had not been heard, um, and she intentionally inserted their that agenda, their voices into um, what was needed in Rio to really bring about the kind of transfer. Transformation. So she was talking about things like public infrastructure and, and, and transportation. She was talking about things about increasing, you know, health services. And again, you know, not criminalizing these communities, but providing them with the resources necessary so they could thrive. So many parallels in terms of the kinds of work that I've had been doing in public health. Um, and so in March I was, of 2018, um, I was there in Rio, and my friend said, you should attend this event called Young Black Women Moving Power Structures. Um, Marielle Franco is organizing it, and, you know, it'll be powerful for you to meet her and some of the other black women in Rio who are on the front line of anti-racism movements um, in Brazil. Um, and so I went. It was March 14, 2018. I attended the event. Uh, there were about 40 or 50 black women um, from around Rio there, uh, Marielle uh, uh, facilitated a discussion with some really powerful voices there, and she said two things um, that stick with me that night. One was, uh, we are dying, our people are dying, and what she was referring to was the, the kinds of ways, again, state fiction violence really targets blacks, um, in particular in Rio. Uh, but she also said, we have to occupy every space with our bodies. And what she meant by that was that the women in the room really represented the, the kind of transformational power uh, necessary to move Brazil towards uh, a more, um, uh, a, a, a less racist society that we needed to be occupying space. And those two things really stuck with me. And so afterwards had the opportunity to meet Marielle. Uh, we joked about our hair and and um, exchange contact information because, again, her work, her ethos, her commitment to this, you know, to justice um, for, you know, for the most marginalized was just so powerful, so wanted to stay connected. And then upon leaving the event that night um, on March 14th, was literally on a high um, after having been among those women, powerful, powerful black women, uh, within about one to two hours, uh, found out that she had been politically assassinated. Um, four bullets to the head um, in a targeted oh assassination. God. And oh. she um, was killed that very night. And um, the juxtaposition of that night of powerful um, black women being in the same room, of me meeting her, and then the ways in which, again, 
the racism exists in this world globally to eradicate the voices of those who are the revolutionary voices that it, it sometimes doesn't want to hear um, was just um, gut-wrenching, and it literally took my breath away. Um, and, um, how, and, and so that was a, it was a hard time, hard night in uh, Rio. Um, the next day, though, one of the things that inspired me, and, and this is you know, what I have seen among black women from Brazil to the U.S. and around the world, is that it was black women who were in the streets on the front lines of protests denouncing her assassination. They were committing and recommitting to the kind of work that really causes Brazil and other places to be transformed. They were committing and recommitting, even in their pain, uh, to push forward in power. And that moment, that seeing those women, some of whom were with me then that night, uh, gave me strength uh, to do the same. And it actually, think, you know, in that moment, I became very unapologetic about the ways in which I talk about racism and the ways in which I see it as one of the forces that um, is, is exacted to, you know, for the demise of black folks all around the world um, and have committed, and, you know, my career it really in honor of her, her, her work, um, her sacrifice, but the ways in which her spirit continues to live on in so many of us. Um, who dare to live a life of resistance. And so I am, and one of the things that I'll say is that, you know, Marielle was so brilliant. Um, and two things that I think are really critical um, as we are entering into this election season, because I saw it firsthand in 2018, um, is that she really wove together um, the issues <clears throat> of state-sanctioned violence against black folks against um, in Brazil and the rise of um, authoritarian governance and the erosion of democracy. And I feel like in this year for me, having experienced that in 2018 and now seeing what's happening, it's almost like deja vu because there, you know, in the wake of her assassination, there were, you know, protesting in the streets. Um, And unfortunately in 2018, although we had in Brazil, you had, the most black women running for public office during that time period, which we're seeing here in the U.S., you, you still, there was still elected, Bolsonaro was still elected even in the midst of that. And so I would just um, pose this as a cautionary tale in this moment that we cannot lose sight of what, is, what could happen in, in November if we do not mobilize in a way, strategically in a way that gets, you know, um, um, uh, you know that, that transfers power in this country because what we have in this current administration as well as leadership in, you know, the U.S. House, U.S. Senate, I mean, in the U.S. Senate and other places is dangerous. Um, and, and, we, and we are on a slippery slope towards further erosion of democracy. And so her story intersecting with mine and, 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 and the ways in which I'm seeing, you know, there's some similar patterns has just been something that I've been talking about and trying to articulate because I think it's really critical uh, that we recognize the, the, the moment that we're in. Yes, that is so true because things have happened already that I never believed could happen. But, um, you know, what did First Lady Michelle Obama say? She said, remember this one thing, if you're wondering if it could get worse... Yes, it could. And um, yeah. and it's scary. It really is. It's frightening. Yeah. It's frightening what could happen when someone's walking down a street shooting a black man in the back. Um, right. And, and everything else with police brutality and people being killed. I mean, it's right. really frightening. This is why, please listen, mobilize. Please listen yeah. to Sherelle. Yeah. And Sherelle, I just want to tell you, it was such such an honor to have you on the show. You are yeah. such an eloquent and articulate speaker, and you have such firepower. And um, we all admire you. 
And we all look up to you and know you will continue fighting this fight. And we will be listening and watching you. Absolutely. Thank you. And just one more thing. Uh, I know we have to go, but I, I cannot get off of this call without just mentioning and saying the name of Breonna Taylor um, in, you know, in this moment and how, how devastating the lack of justice in that case was. And again, remind, a reminder of the ways in which racism is just so rampant and we have to address it again um, in this country. And so her murder really in, in March of 20, uh, March 13th of this year and the lack of justice that has, you know, that was rendered um, last week is just, again, one, another reason we have to continue to fight and we have to continue uh, to challenge um, uh, this country, this nation. Yeah, and I hate to say it, but I will. Imagine if that had been reversed by race. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. The whole way. The whole way around. Yes. The whole yeah. way around. Um, and, yeah. you know... Yeah, Brianna Taylor. I'm glad you said her name. And I'm glad, glad you remind people that these people do have a name. And they are yeah. someone's child. Uh, you know, yeah, they are someone's good. wife or husband, but they are someone's child. Um, and thanks, thanks. thinking about what happened to her is just absolutely horrific. Well, Sherelle... I have a quote about everything you have said uh, by Mm -hmm. an abolitionist uh, from England that first started Mm -hmm. this into slavery, William Wilberforce. And Mm -hmm. this fits everything you were saying today. You may Mm -hmm. choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. And that is so true. Uh, Sherelle, thank you again. Uh, You will be on again because it is just, I love you and I love having you on and I love your message and we will be having you on again. And this is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you all next week. We're going to talk more about this upcoming election. Talk to you then. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are the leader in live Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.